0: We'll hear argument next in case 07751, Pearson versus Callahan. Mr. Sturba?
1: Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. At the time of the arrest in this case, there were three different federal circuits and two state courts that had established it was constitutionally permissible for a police officer to enter a home without a warrant as a follow up entry to effectuate an arrest. After an illegal drug transaction with a government agent had occurred and probable cause had been established. Although the rule has become known as the doctrine of consent once removed, and the lower courts have advanced various rationales in support of the rule, the name or label is not important. What is important is that the rule is predicated upon well-recognized Fourth Amendment principles and that at the time of the arrest, the consent doctrine was well-established in the lower courts as settled Fourth Amendment law. Thus, irrespective of how this Court rules on the constitutionality of the rule itself, the petitioner officers could have reasonably believed that what they were doing was lawful.
0: But because the Fourth Amendment principle of consent was well-established, In other words, if a police officer goes to the door and says, may I come in, that is is, uh, perfectly acceptable. Is that the level of generality that you think we ought to analyze this issue at?
1: No. Certainly, we think that the the generality of just pure consent is not the level at which it should be determined. In fact, that was the problem with the Tenth Circuit case. But it has to be — the right has to be defined in a specific, clear way and it has to be the contours of the right have to be sufficiently clear that police officers know that when they engage in the conduct they know that the work they're doing is unlawful in this case mr chief justice all of the law that was in existing at the time of the entry was supportive of exactly what the police officers did
2: well it seems to me that that misses the point of the case i mean the point of the case is that consent to the police was established Consent to police informants was not. And that when I consent, uh, I am not consenting to the, to the whole world. If I am consenting to somebody who is not a police officer, that is not equivalent to consenting to a police officer. That's the point of the case. And as I understand it, there was, there was only one case, uh, at the time this occurred, uh, which equated the confidential informant for the police with the police, and that was the Seventh Circuit case. Isn't that correct?
1: Justice Souter, we're not, we're not contending this is an implied consent case, although that has been a theory that has been advanced in the lower courts. We believe that the way that this was constitutionally lawful, this is really a Lewis case, and that is once you engage in some illegal conduct with a government agent, in your home, you have waived any expectation of privacy.
2: No, but that 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 equa- in terms of, of existing law, that equates the government agent, which in this case is not a police officer but a confidential informant, with a police officer. And it seems to me that's the nub of the case. Is that person equivalent? So that consent to one, in effect, is consent to as many police as want to come in? Uh, or is it not the case? And it seems to me what you've got to argue here is that the confidential informant and the police officer, for Fourth Amendment purposes, should be treated as identical.
1: Absolutely. And we do, and we think that there's should. no
2: clear law on that. That's why we're here. No, one, at the time this case was, uh, the, this search was made, as I understand it, there was only one case which held there was such an equivalence. Is that
1: correct? There, there are two points, Justice Souter. First of all, with respect to the lawfulness of a confidential Well, first,
2: first, just I'm, I want to hear what you say, but just tell me: Is is it correct that at that time there was one case that held the equivalence?
1: No, Your Honor. There but were the actually Com- there were actually three out of the seventh circuit, the Pollard case out of the sixth circuit, which involved a police officer and a confidential informant. Which was not informant. a circuit case, right? That is a circuit district case. 8? That was a circuit court case, U.S. versus. So the Pollard. there,
2: there were three circuit court holdings that the confidential informant was equivalent to a police
1: officer. There were three out of the Seventh Circuit, Paul, Diaz, and I think it's Asiano, were all confidential informant cases, or the courts ruled squarely that there was no difference between a confidential informant and a police officer. Okay. Did you, now, do you have other circuits that held that? Yes, Your Honor. The Pollard case involved a confidential informant. Where is Pollard from? Sixth Circuit. Sixth. And they cited in support- the confidential informant cases from the Seventh Circuit. We also read Bramble, which is a 2000, I'm sorry, 1995 Ninth Circuit case, which talked about a government agent did not draw a distinction between a confidential informant and a police officer, as supportive as well. And that's exactly what Judge Kelly determined in the dissenting opinion in the Tenth Circuit. Okay. Now, why are why are they correct? Why should
2: the confidential <coughs> informant be treated as equivalent to a police
1: officer? Well, Fundamentally, and and of course, the test is, for Fourth Amendment purposes, it's the Skinner test. But once you are a government agent or a government actor, there really is no material difference in terms of what the confidential informant would do or the undercover police officer would do. Oh, but there's an
3: enormous difference between the training and the character of a police officer. And as this very case illustrates, the confidential informers are often very shady characters who can't be counted on to be truth tellers and have a powerful incentive to get someone for the police because in most cases they're seeking to have their own case dealt with sympathetically. So how can you equate a police officer with a confidential informer who is usually someone who knows where the drug house is because he's a dealer himself. Uh,
1: two points. In our reply brief, pages six and seven, we point out the wide variety of confidential informants. They come in many different shapes. And How about sizes. this
3: the one in this wasn't this one that fits my description? The one in this case?
1: Uh, this one clearly had a drug problem. This one also attended college. This one also was a star athlete in high school. And this one also was reliable in a previous drug transaction. Moreover, he was trying
2: to, was trying to make a deal to get leniency with the police.
1: Well, there, there's no question about that. But once again, he's a government actor. And for purposes of Fourth Amendment liability, it really doesn't matter whether he's a police officer or a confidential informant, as long as he's an agent. Of the government, which clearly he was, he was a government act. But, but you,
2: you certainly cannot argue. I, maybe you are, but I, I don't see how you can argue in response to Justice Ginsburg that the integrity to be expected from a confidential informant, taking that as a category of the law, uh, including all sorts of informants, uh, is the integrity that
1: we would expect from a police officer. Well, as a general proposition, Justice sitter you can't make. That kind of determination, as we point out, why can't I? Because sometimes confidential informants are retired police officers. Sometimes confidential informants are police cadets. Sometimes confidential informants. Then,
2: if if, if that is if that is true, as, as it clearly is, they run the gamut from the good to the bad. You can't make the, adopt the proposition categorically that confidential informants should be regarded as having the same integrity as a police officer.
1: I wouldn't want to make that statement. I don't know that's material, though, to the analysis under the Fourth Amendment and whether or not once you're a government agent or a government actor, there really is no legal significance that flows from that to draw a distinction between one who is actually employed by the police, taking a paycheck from the police, and one who is not.
3: Well, well, there's, there's one feature of this that I think is really puzzling. we be What this case is about is the Fourth Amendment that requires, with certain exceptions, the main rule is you get a warrant. And here you have a a confidential informer going to the place to make sure that they really do have the goods. Then he goes back to the police. He spends two hours. He's being wired and whatever else. Why didn't somebody pick up a phone and get a warrant at that point? The confidential informer could say, I was there and I saw the drugs. What the whole purpose of these rules is to have the police get a warrant when they can. And how do you explain it? Two hours lapse between when they had probable cause And when they, when the informer returns for the second time?
1: Well, Justice Ginsburg, the officers testified why they didn't get a warrant 244 and 245 of the joint appendix and 256 and 257. Two problems. One, they weren't sure the drugs were going to be there. These are small amounts of drugs in a rural area. They dissipate very quickly. We're talking about sure. probable cause.
2: If they got a warrant within an hour or two of the, of the time that that informant says he saw them there, do you seriously question whether there would be probable cause?
1: I'm only going on the record and what these informed officers said. But we're are asking to. for the, the basis. You're asking for a
2: rule, and, and, and our questions go to, to the reason for having that rule. And the officers may have said, and I will assume they said in this case, oh, gee, we weren't, weren't sure the drugs would still be there. But in terms of, 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 of probable cause law, that's, that's, that's just not a serious uh, answer, is it?
1: Well, well it, it is. And in essence, we're talking about an anticipatory warrant, and under U.S. versus Grubbs. You not only need probable cause to believe that the drugs will be there. They don't even the, need an
2: anticipatory warrant. They need a warrant to go in and search that place on the grounds that there are probably drugs there. And if they saw drugs there a couple of hours beforehand, and they have no affirmative evidence uh, which they should bring forward under the Frank standard to indicate that the drugs were being taken out, is there any serious question that probable cause would be found
1: uh, just, uh, Justice Souter, I, I don't believe at the time approximately 9 o'clock in the evening, the police had probable cause to believe the drugs were there. They An informant been,
2: just came out and said there were drugs there, and they don't have probable cause?
1: Uh, at, at the time of 9 o'clock, I don't think it was established that there were drugs. In Why I not? I, I thought I it, was, it was, was
3: established even not only that there were drugs, but that he actually tasted some.
1: He never told the police that. And the purpose purpose of the operation, of course, was to establish that there was, in fact, drugs in the house, the transaction would occur, and that would conclusively establish probable cause. And I don't think we should fault the police for essentially being careful before they entered the home to make sure that, in fact, they had probable cause. The reason
2: the police are being faulted is that they didn't get a warrant, and the warrant requirement is a, a, a generally good starting place for a Fourth Amendment argument. Justice Ginsburg's point is that if they had an informant who had seen drugs in the place within two hours, they had, had they been before a magistrate, the basis uh, in probable cause to get a warrant, and I still haven't heard why, in fact, they couldn't have got one or why they didn't have the probable cause.
1: Well, as I, as I, as I explained before, they believe the drugs in that- I'm not interested
2: in what they personally believed. We're talking about objective Fourth Amendment standards. Did they or Did they not? Have a basis to establish probable cause at that point. Uh, we don't believe
1: they did, Your Honor, and we don't believe they could have gotten an anticipated. I, I will warrant. admit
2: that is the most astonishing view of, of probable cause I have heard in this courtroom. Of course,
1: they had Well, the record evidence doesn't substantiate that, or they would
2: have why, gotten. Why doesn't it? Or they would why, have gotten a warrant. It? As I understand, the record evidence is that their informant was in that guy's home and within. Two hours of the point that we went through the, the, the second entry, uh, he had seen drugs. Why wasn't there probable cause within that two-hour period?
1: Because the police did not believe that at the, at the time that they could have gotten a warrant that the drugs would not have been dissipated. And they, they, as they testified, the magic Is that a reasonable said, belief? Pardon me?
2: I mean, we're talking about probable cause, not a, an establishment of mathematical certainty.
1: Here's another point. That is just an option, Justice Souter. The police, if you believe the police could have gotten a warrant, they didn't have to get a warrant. They obviously were engaged in a buy-bust operation, which eventually led them to the particular position where they clearly established probable cause. They clearly would
2: have been if they had sent a police officer in. You're asking us to extend the police officer rule to include a confidential informant rule. One reason for doing so uh, is, or would be. That in practical terms there is a need for it. Justice Ginsburg's question was, why is there a need for it when they could have gotten a warrant? And we still haven't heard an answer.
1: In, in rural Utah, and this is page 47 of the joint appendix, the officers testified that one of the reasons why they need to use confidential informants is because the police are all known. And therefore, if they're going to engage in any drug, then any why incident, didn't they, they use, use
2: the it. confidential informant to get a warrant?
1: Well, Uh, I I don't know how I can answer the question any more than I have, Justice Souter. That That, that that they they chose not to for reasons they didn't believe they had a probable cause and they were concerned that the drugs had been dissipated. Counsel,
0: given the the posture of the ultimate issue in this case on the underlying constitutional question, you do not have to prove that you're right. Isn't that correct? You just have to establish that the contrary principle is not clearly established.
1: Uh, That's correct. And the law at the time, that these officers engaged in this operation, entered the home, and once again it was based upon probable cause, supported in fact constitutionally what they did, and that it was indeed permissible. And that was the basis upon which we believe, irrespective of how the Court views whether they should or should not have gotten a warrant and the constitutional implications of that, that the law was clearly not established sufficiently such that these officers are entitled to qualified immunity. That was one of the problems with the Tenth Circuit case. They may, I, may I
3: just establish one thing? Tell me if I'm, I'm wrong. That this argument about consent once removed was not presented in the lower courts. That is, in the trial court, you argued exigent circumstances, and then on appeal, the inevitable discovery rule. So there was... In the courts below, this was not given as the reason, the consent once removed was not alleged as the basis, uh, as the justification for this search.
1: That's true. On the criminal appeal, appeal, the state did not argue. Lewis didn't argue consent once removed, and, and that, is, that is part of the problem with the number of cases that have been cited by the respondent. They're exited circumstances cases. Where the consent once removed doctrine or Lewis isn't even advocated or litigated. We think that's very important. Unless the justices have any other questions, I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you.
0: Mr. Stewart?
4: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The police entry in this case was constitutional and in any event did not infringe any constitutional right that was clearly established at the time the officers acted. The mandatory order of decision for qualified immunity cases announced in Saussier versus Katz should be overruled. I, I did want to begin by clarifying uh, the answer to your question, Justice Ginsburg, because I'm not sure if it was entirely clear. There, there were really two cases here, one of which was the criminal prosecution of Mr. Callahan, the respondent in this Court, and the individual officers were not parties to that case that was handled by the state of Utah. And you're correct that in the criminal proceeding, the consent once removed argument was not made and that led to the motion to suppress ultimately being granted and consequently Mr. Callahan is not subject to criminal proceedings. Mr. Callahan did file a civil suit against the individual officers who were involved in effecting the, the arrest and in that civil proceeding, the consent-once-removed argument was made all the way up. It was made in the District Court, and it was made in the Court of Appeals as well. Mr.
5: Stewart, can I follow up on one other thing that came up during the proceeding argument? Isn't the issue whether there was or was not probable cause quite separate from the uh, consent-once-removed doctrine? Assuming that there was probable cause here, there may be many instances in which the consent-once-removed doctrine would be applied if it's a valid doctrine where there wasn't previously probable cause.
4: That's correct. I I think the consent-once-removed doctrine would have its greatest utility in cases where the police suspect but don't have probable cause to believe that a particular individual is engaged in criminal activity. And so they send an informant or an undercover police officer in to try to either confirm or dispel their suspicions. They wouldn't be able to get a warrant at the outset because they would not have probable cause at that time of ongoing criminal conduct.
2: But if if our question is, should uh, consent once removed be recognized as a doctrine that covers the confidential informant in this case, one question that we may sensibly ask is, is there a need to recognize that broad, a consent doctrine? And one question that would bear on that would be, in these cases, is there difficulty or impossibility of getting a warrant on a normal probable cause standards? And I think that was the point of Justice Ginsburg's question. Do you doubt that they could have gotten a
4: warrant uh, uh, within the two-hour period? Well, we, we certainly think that they had probable cause. There was testimony from police officers to the effect that magistrates in Utah would be reluctant to grant warrants based on these circumstances because of the possibility the drugs would be dissipated. I'm not in a position to second-guess their empirical experience as to the circumstances under which Utah magistrates will and will not grant warrants, but we think as a legal matter there was probable cause and that a warrant should have been issued. But certainly there there are plenty of circumstances.
3: That's — it's not just this case — maybe you can tell me, I thought because they were dealing with a confidential informant rather than a police officer. They sent him in to do the dry run. I mean, the, the police officer's cases usually the the undercover police officer goes in. The other police officers are there, ready to come in when he gives them the signal. But the and police officers don't ordinarily go through this dry run that they had here with the confidential informer?
4: Well, I would think that with either police officers or with informants, you could have some situations in which the undercover operative has very recently attempted to confirm the presence of drugs, and you could have other cases in which the undercover operative, again, either an informant or a a police officer, could hear rumors on the street that a particular individual was engaged in drug dealing might not have probable cause, and they might decide that the best way to set up the operation was to send this person in to attempt to make a buy at a time when probable cause was lacking. But they would want to arrange the operation in such a way that if the operative's experience confirmed their suspicions and gave them probable cause to arrest, they would be able to go in immediately. And our principal contention is not that the consent to the entry of Bartholomew was implicit consent to the later entry of the police officers. It was that once a person has, even unknowingly, admitted a government agent into his home, his expectation of privacy is sharply reduced. And the entry of the officers works an insubstantial incremental invasion of privacy. And I'd like to return to the point that Mr. Sturba was making. It's true that the informant here lacked the training and skills that, and integrity, for that matter, that you would expect a police officer to have. But he was, for Fourth Amendment purposes, a government agent, a state actor. If his handlers had instructed him to look for an opportunity to rummage through Mr. drawers, Edward, could I interrupt you? Because there's something that hasn't been reached. Do you think that we should answer the constitutional question
6: first, or the? I would, uh, immunity question first.
4: We think that this court in this case should address the constitutional question first because it is the subject of a square circuit conflict. It's been briefed and, and argued. It's a question that independently warrants resolution. It's quite
6: difficult. I mean, there. Are... We don't know quite a lot about whether they would have gotten the warrant, how 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 dangerous it was, whether the drugs were likely to be hidden. And, and I was thinking of it, so as why I'm saying this, as a, as a perfect reason, since constitutional questions in this area are, are like the stars in the sky. There are so many. And rather than having the judges answer each one and getting in everything mixed up, why not just have them take whatever is the easier path? As a judge, I'd like to take what's the easier path. Well, if it's easier to deal with the qualified immunity, deal with it. And forget the rest
4: of it. I guess the, the first thing I would say in response to that is we think that the, the balance or the way in which discretion will ordinarily be exercised will typically be different in the case of the lower courts than in the case of this court. Because the principal role of the lower federal courts is to decide individual cases before them, usually in the most expeditious and, and non-controversial See way, that. way they unless can. Unless we do that here,
6: they're never going to get the right message. And so what we will have is 1,000 judges trying, in an average in a year, 50 or 60 cases each with multiple facts. And we will have approximately, over a 10-year period, hundreds of thousands. I've exaggerated. But there will be many, 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 many conflicts, many, many confusions. And unless we say, no, we're not doing it ourselves, how will they ever get the message?
4: Well, I, I think they'll get the message. They don't always have to do it, but I mean once. I think they'll get the message if the Court tells them that the mandatory rule of saucier is no longer in effect, that courts have discretion to decide based on their sound judgment. Whether it why, makes-
0: isn't it, why isn't it an advisory opinion if we do not have to decide to decide the ultimate question, whether this is constitutional or not? but simply whether or not it was clearly established, whether it was unconstitutional, why isn't it purely advisory opinion to say whether it's constitutional or
4: not? I mean, in one sense, it is an, it's an advisory opinion, but in another sense, there are, there are often cases in which two alternative grounds for decision are proffered, either one of which, if accepted, would compel a judgment in one litigant's favor. And the fact that it would theoretically, if the Court concludes in its own … No, no,
0: no. Those are different grounds, it seems to me. Those are two independent, as you said here it 's kind of a it 's a progression you first ask either mm-hmm. under under somebody 's view i guess the saucier view whether or not it 's constitutional or not, and then whether it 's clearly established i just don 't know why the first question isn 't purely advisory because you don 't have to know whether it 's constitutional
4: or not well it 's true that if the court announced that this search was constitutional, then it would necessarily be saying and there was no clearly established constitutional law to the contrary at the time the officers acted but the court question. I mean, look, if I have
6: to answer the constitutional question, the thing that bothers me is this consent at one remove. What? You're saying a drug seller who lets in a disguised policeman in order to sell him a drug because he thinks he's a drug is suddenly consenting to the entire LAPD coming into his house? I would think that's the last thing he would have thought about wanting.
4: Not the first. But that, that would be equally true in the case of the undercover police officer. Well, maybe right. they both should be the same. But, but that's,
7: I, that's, I, what, that's what I, I wanted to know, and it gets back to the merits, not the sausage. We're going through two different things here. Uh, assume this is an undercover officer, not an eight, but not an not a, uh, informant. Uh, the undercover officer sees a crime being committed. Uh, he's ready to make the arrest. Can he automatically uh, ask police assistance and, and are police ins- the police then entitled to? Uh, come into the home, in your view, or do they have to be some exigent circumstances?
4: No, we think you could automatically ask for the police to come into the home, because the incremental intrusion on privacy by having several police officers rather than one to make the arrest would be insubstantial. But isn't and- the
2: reason it's insubstantial is that we have a rule for independent reasons having nothing necessarily to do with this kind of situation in which one officer's knowledge is regarded as another officer's knowledge, the police are regarded as a group, so that we have a rule ready in place saying, you show one, you've shown the whole Department. We don't, however, have
4: any such rule with respect to agents generally. I think you don't have that precise rule, but it is nevertheless the case that the undercover operative here, the informant, was a State actor. Had he been instructed to look in private places without consent, his conduct would have constituted a Fourth Amendment violation because he would have been regarded for that purpose as an agent of the state, and he should therefore be regarded as a state agent for these purposes just, as well. Just,
7: just to be clear, if, if I may, I know your red light's on. Your position is that if an undercover officer is in the premises, sees a crime being committed, he automatically can invite police into to assist him in making the arrest without exigent circumstances. That's correct. What's, what do I read? What authority? Do you cite me for that? Okay. I, I
4: don't think this, this Court has ever squarely so held. I believe that the respondents concede that because they don't take issue with the fact that consent once removed is applicable when the person already inside is an undercover police officer.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Metzler.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the Court. This is a case about consent. By consenting to the entry of a confidential informant, did Mr. Callahan consent to the entry of police? The answer is no, and no reasonable officer could have believed otherwise. This Court has long held that it is presumptively unreasonable for police to enter a home without consent or exigent circumstances or a warrant. Here, there were no exigent circumstances, there was no warrant, nor was there any consent.
0: uh, Was Mr. Stewart correct that you Concede that if this person entering the house were in fact a police officer, that uh, this would have been okay.
8: No, Your Honor, we think it's a closer case. But if it's a poli- if this confidential informant had been a police officer, it would be the same analysis. There's no exigent circumstance here. There's no consent, and uh, and the consent to the confident- to the police officer in your case would not extend to the. Well, you would, you would
7: agree he could make the, uh, the arrest by himself, assuming a police officer. Yes, he, he certainly could make, make the by arrest himself. by himself. But, but but you're and but you're saying he can't um, ask for assistance to to make that arrest effective in all cases. There had to be some exigent circumstance.
8: Correct. If if. There is some sort of exigent circumstances. In this case, they would have planned that in advance, and police are not allowed to create their own
5: exigency to get around the Fourth Amendment. And you're advocating a rule that's going to get police officers killed, aren't they? Aren't you? This is the, an, if an undercover police officer in a house making a drug buy, and you want to say that the, the single officer who's there in an undercover capacity can say, You guys are all under arrest, he can't signal for other police officers to come in and help him effect the arrest without anybody being killed?
8: Well, of course, the safest alternative would be for him to simply withdraw, get on the telephone, and, and get a warrant to come back in, or during the two hours that they were planning this entry, he could have uh, gotten a warrant then, or an anticipatory warrant. So there, there are plenty of, of safe options.
7: Well, it seems to me that in the, in the case that Justice Alito put, that there are exigent circumstances.
8: Well, to the extent that they planned it in advance and the, the basis of their entry — Well oh, that,
7: that's a, a different point, and I uh, have some question about that. It, it seems to me the police are never quite sure exactly what's going to happen.
8: Well, if they've, if they've planned on an exigent circumstance as being the reason that they're allowed to go in — under this Court's decisions, long line of decisions, since Peyton and Stiegold saying exigent circumstances or consent are the way to get in without a warrant, then it would not be permissible. If a you're truly exigent MR. You're circumstances, imagining
6: different cases. We can imagine a spectrum of cases. In some cases, the policeman or the confidential informant will be there, and he really couldn't have gotten a, a, a thing in advance, a warrant in advance. It wasn't certain. And they're in there, and they see a lot of drug behavior going on. The drugs are going to be hidden, go, disappear the second he leaves. And if he tries to arrest him, everybody's going to jump on him and kill him. Okay? So there are a lot of cases just like this one, but with a few changes, which are he needs to call the police. And there'll be others where he doesn't. So that's why I'm so uncertain about what it is we're deciding here on the merits. We'd have to say on the merits, this is a case where there no, are no exigent circumstances. Can we say that? I would not want to say, never are
5: there.
8: Well, I think certainly in this case there were not exigent circumstances. The informant was on his way out the door. He, he wasn't attempting to make an arrest. No one thought that the, uh, that Mr. Callahan would destroy the drugs or that anyone would flee. There were no, and, and in fact, the, the uh, petitioners abandoned exigent circumstances in the Court of Appeals. So I think you can decide this case on the merits, saying there were no exigent circumstances, and then ask, is it reasonable to think that because there was an informant inside and because he sent out a signal that there was probable cause, a drug transaction had happened inside the House, does that make any difference whatsoever as to whether there was consent and, and no reasonable not, officer? Not, at least
0: I find it a very difficult question. Um, I do not find it necessarily a terribly difficult question, whether that — whatever the answer is — whether it was clearly established, precisely because I find the underlying question difficult. You know, you've got a handful of Court of Appeals decisions. You've got a factual variation. The issue is whether to extend the police coming in uh, to a confidential informant. All those questions are very difficult. Um, but precisely because they are, it doesn't seem that the rule, whichever rule is adopted, is clearly established. Why don't, and yet if I were on the lower Court of Appeals, you would say, or the Saucier would say, I've got to decide that very difficult constitutional question and then decide what's a very easy qualified immunity question. Is that, why does that make sense?
8: With respect, Mr. Chief Justice, I don't think it's a difficult question. At well, I know you
0: don't, because you're arguing one side of it. But when you put the... <laughs> Concede for purposes of argument that it is a difficult question. Why don't we just tell the lower courts? We do it. We go right ahead to the qualified immunity question by you know, granting CERT on one. Why shouldn't the lower courts have the same luxury?
8: Well, with regard to the Saussier question, we think that the court should keep the Saussier question, and particularly in this case where there's a circuit split, the court should decide the constitutional question and, and not move on to the clearly established question. Why?
0: Because we need to provide guidance on that question? Yes. Well, it can, uh, do you think it can't come up any other way?
8: Well, it certainly could come up yeah. in a criminal case, um, or
0: a, or a suit against a political subdivision, right? I mean, you could have sued uh, some other political entity other than the officers individually, right?
8: Certainly, uh, Mr. Callahan did sue the county in this case. But it, it seems to me that this is an
7: area where the police do need guidance. And I need guidance. I find, I find this very difficult uh it it seems to me that we could have learned a lot of the search if, if, if the courts of
8: appeals had addressed this question well this court and in Peyton and stigold in a, in a, in a long line Sossier. of cases. i'm sorry I, I missed that question which is what they would do under associate right well, well i mean it's important to address the constitutional question first, in, in this case and in other cases, in order to make sure that the, that the law continues to elaborate and that potentially meritorious constitutional rights well, are Well, but that ever- was my question. There are other ways for the law to develop. The issue can come up on
0: the merits in a suit against the municipality, which doesn't raise the qualified immunity question. It can come up if you have a search where the person sues to get whatever was seized back. Um, you know, if there's a uh, — and, and also, perhaps, and if the option is If the question of which order to proceed is optional, the law can develop when the courts, for uh, good and sufficient reasons, decide to reach the constitutional question first. I'm just wondering what benefit there is in an absolute rigid rule that courts of appeals, I mean, I, I had a few of these cases, the courts of appeals, I thought it was very odd that I had to go and decide a difficult constitutional issue and then not worry about it because in one sentence you say, well, but the issue is not clearly established and so there's qualified immunity.
8: Well, that would take us back to before Saucier in the Court. Uh, It's a recent decision. It hasn't proven to be unworkable, and, in fact, the recent Well,
0: my point, though, is that, at least in my experience, it was unworkable or at least frustrating in that we had to decide not just a factual question but a constitutional question in a context where it wasn't necessary.
8: Well, it depends on your or your view of necessity. In in some cases, certainly, they won't really come up in in other contexts. And if the the law is not established in Section 1983 suit, it may never be established. But here, we're talking about. A a question where there is a a circuit split, and the court definitely should provide guidance to the the lower courts. I don't think it's a definite. Doesn't
0: the fact that there's a circuit split almost by definition mean that it's not clearly established?
8: Well, this court has looked to controlling its own precedents and the controlling circuit law to decide what is what law is clearly established. And here, since Payton and Steagall, the court has held that there is a bright-line rule. It's very simple for police officers. It's easy for them to understand. If they would like to enter without a warrant, and they don't have exigent circumstances, and they don't have consent, then it is presumptively unconstitutional. And that, that's a good rule and an easy rule, and it's also why this is not a, a difficult constitutional question. There are no exigent circumstances in this case, and no reasonable officer could conclude that the presence of a confidential informant inside the House means that there is consent to the police officer What if the,
5: What if the officers in this case had read the Seventh Circuit decisions, and they said, these are judges on the United States Court of Appeals, and they think that this is — consistent with the Fourth Amendment. And what's more, one of these is written, one of these opinions is written by Judge Posner, and he's the smartest man in the world. (laughs) He knows everything there is to know about law and economics and jurisprudence and literature and many other subjects. Now, it's unreasonable for them to follow that. Well, I think that that officers
8: in the Tenth Circuit need to be aware the way that our federal court system works, and the Seventh Circuit's decision simply isn't binding on the Tenth Circuit. And with all due respect to Judge Posner, he dropped the ball on this one. He said this is is a case where, in in United States versus Paul, there were no exigent circumstances. The, The officers there could have gotten a warrant, and he said should have gotten a warrant. But he said this is justified by consent. He's saying that consent to one person is consent to many, and the Court's cases have said that consent is based on ordinary social expectations. And when you let one person into your house, you just don't let in the whole world.
0: Now, so if the, if the Tenth Circuit says this is not allowed, and every other circuit since the Tenth Circuit's decision has held that it is, uh, is that clearly established that it's not allowed in the Tenth Circuit?
8: Yes. I think that the, certainly an officer in the Tenth Circuit would be bound to follow the, the Tenth Circuit rule. I mean, it's, it's not irrelevant that other and other courts have decided it differently, but to the extent that there is controlling law in the circuit, I think that they have. And to it call is it. irrelevant.
0: Then it is irrelevant that ten well, other it, circuits it, it, have decided it differently.
8: It, that very well might wind up in, in this court if there were ten to one. Well, win.
0: right. Well, do the police officers get to decide that? Do they get to decide not only that Judge Posner thinks this, but all uh, ten other circuits think this? And it's been five years since the Tenth Circuit. I mean, do they have to go through that type of analysis?
8: Well, we don't expect officers to survey the entire case law and come up with a law professor's view of whether this is reasonable or not. We expect them to follow the clearly, the, the bright lines that this Court has set down and that are set down in their uh, their home jurisdiction. And if their home jurisdiction says it's unconstitutional, it's not reasonable for them to follow some out-of-circuit decision. If, for instance... The Seventh Circuit had said that a warrantless home entry is okay so long as the officer had breakfast in the last half hour. That's an unreasonable rule, and it wouldn't be reasonable for any officer to follow that. And the facts here are about as relevant to consent as whether there was — the officer had breakfast that morning. So the officers here are not entitled to qualified immunity, nor can they rely on the Seventh Circuit. The petitioners — have not given you any good reason to adopt a new exception here. They say that this is based on a waiver theory or that it's a private search or that it is uh, incident to arrest, but all of those ignore the substantial interest in the sanctity of the home. Do any
0: of of the other cases involve, the other circuit cases, involve confidential informants as opposed to police officers?
8: Other than the Seventh Circuit? Yeah. The uh, the. One case in the Sixth Circuit, there was both a confidential informant and a police officer were admitted, and in the later case in the Sixth Circuit that did say this is okay for which came after the events in this case, but it said it was okay. So
0: at the time, every circuit, other than the, you know, if there's a police officer and a confidential informant, I think that can be considered a police officer because he's going to call the police in. Every Court of Appeals decision involving a confidential informant said it was Okay
8: actually we cited three circuits where these same facts happened in the eighth circuit the first circuit and the eleventh circuit and in those
0: circuits did the court focus on the distinction between the police officer and the confidential informant
8: well n- no the the, uh, the court looked to whether there were exigent circumstances or consent they, the courts followed this court's decision in uh, peyton and bramble and, and, and that line of cases
0: do you believe that what, what is the appropriate level of generality to look at in addressing this question case involving a confidential informant?
8: Um, I think the appropriate level of, of generality is that the facts uh, uh, under the Court's — the Court has covered the field when it comes to warrantless home entries. If you have a warrant, you're okay. If you have exigent circumstances, you're okay. And if you have consent, you're okay. Everything else is presumptively unconstitutional. And it's just, hey, why is that? Because that's what this question why, has why isn't many it, times. Why
0: isn't it that the issue hasn't come up? This question of, of a confidential informant is one that hasn't come up. Why would we say that's presumptively unconstitutional?
8: Well, the court's language is that it's presumptively or per se unconstitutional. It's said that many times. And it's because easy...
3: you're talking about the main rule for police is get a warrant, accept, and I think the court has said a number of times to make the search reasonable. The police have to get a warrant because you want to interject the judicial officer in between the police and the person in jeopardy. So the main rule is warrant, unless, and then you have said the exceptions, but I think your point is there is a main rule. Yes. Which this Court has gotten from the Constitution. Get a warrant if you can
5: is it your argument that uh, in the situation where the, the exigent circumstances are the creation of, of the scenario that the police have set up, the police cannot, and you have a police uh, officer who is the, uh, the undercover um, operative who has the power to make an arrest, that police officer cannot signal for other officers to come in and assist with the arrest?
4: Well. Uh-
8: our position is that would be the, the additional officers' entry would violate the Constitution if there's
5: additional the, officers would, would, vi- that would violate the Fourth Amendment. Yes. Even if there's an officer safety problem there.
8: Well, to the extent that they have created an officer safety problem, obviously the officers are going to go in to help him. No one's going to get hurt. But the additional officers' entry can violate the Fourth Amendment. And
7: so, the, so the police say, you know, we made a mistake. We should have had a warrant, but we have our man in there now. We've got to do something. The, the police cannot send assistance.
8: No, of course they can send assistance, and, and they probably no, will.
7: But could you say they've created the exigent circumstances.
8: Yes, they have, which is why the additional officer's entry would violate the Fourth Amendment. Now, there might be limited consequences.
7: So, so the, my first statement was correct. It's, it's illegal for the police to send their assistance, their other, the other officers in.
8: Yes, my answer was as a practical matter, uh, no, no police officer is going to leave, even if they. No, yeah, but made then he's,
7: he's going to get sued.
8: He very well may get sued, and there there could be questions of of fact as to
7: So you say as a practical matter, we have to say that under the Constitution we can endanger — we must endanger the officer.
8: Well, I disagree that the officers will be endangered. The safest option — No, no. no,
7: The hypothetical is they have to send people into a system, but the hypothetical also is they should have anticipated this, and therefore, in your words, they created the exigent circumstance.
8: They did create the exigent circumstance, and —
7: it seems to me that that, that that dilemma and that paradox casts considerable doubt on your proposition that if the police create the exigent circumstances, they cannot then rely on them I, I, I seriously question that proposition
8: well even if even if you disagree with me on that it shouldn 't make any difference to, in this case where there was no exigent circumstances
7: no no, i, I want to talk about the general rule
8: okay well, the general and nevertheless, You like uh, want us
7: to write an opinion saying that any time the police create the exigent circumstances, they, they can't rely on them if they'd had the time to get a warrant. And well, I, I find that a, a dangerous rule.
8: I don't think you would need to write an opinion that would say that, because exigent circumstances are, are not in this case. Well, Mr.
2: Messler, what, what do you say to this line of reasoning? Um, is it we, — we have, in, in prior cases, adopted the position that — uh, for purposes of establishing probable cause, the knowledge of one police officer is also the knowledge of all police officers, at least within a department, or working on a on a particular problem. Um, so that if, uh, in in a case in in which there is a search without a warrant, uh, if 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 you add up everything that individual officers knew, and that amounts to probable cause, then the search is good. Why don't we apply, in effect, the same rule in, in the hypothetical case that you have been given, in which it is a police officer who is admitted by consent and there are other police officers outside? Uh, at the point at which the police officer who has been admitted has the knowledge necessary for an arrest, um, uh, and has that knowledge as a result of the invitation and the waiver of privacy uh, as to him, why don't we regard that uh, on, on sort of doc- general doctrinal grounds as a waiver of privacy with respect to the police in general, just as we regard police knowledge uh, as being imputed to all police officers? That way you, you don't have the problem uh, that, for example, Justice Kennedy's uh, hypo raises, uh, even in the absence of exigent circumstances, but it doesn't open the door to what you're objecting to here. Well, why why isn't that a, a proper solution or proper answer to his hypo?
3: Well,
8: uh, if you were to adopt that sort of, I, I think that you you certainly could adopt that rationale, but I don't think that the way the way to get there is through a, a waiver because really there's nothing that the person the suspect has done uh, that he knows about. That would mean that he waives the expectation that additional people will come in. There might be under a general no, you're, you're
2: absolutely right. In terms of his psychological process, the only person he's invited in is the one person. The reason for coming up with the answer I suggested is a broader doctrinal reason. And that is the reason that we have, for probable cause purposes, regarded the police or the knowledge of one police officer as the knowledge of all why don't we for the same reason since it is privacy that is at stake in all of these cases regard the invitation of one police officer as the invitation uh, of of all or to all
8: again i don't think that that the way to get there is through consent if you wanted to balance and say, well, the the government has an agent in there who who is making the arrest, and there's safety concerns and other reasons why we would want to do that, that might be one way to get there. I don't think it's through consent.
2: Well, it would be consent to the one officer plus a doctrinal basis to uh, construe that consent for Fourth Amendment purposes as as a broader consent. That's, That's what we would be doing. Yeah, well, we, we okay. wouldn't be doing it because the, the individual in the, in the trailer says, I am inviting in the whole L.A. Police Department. We're doing it because he invites one L.A. police officer in, and we have a doctrinal basis for regarding the police, as it were, uh, collectively uh, rather than individually, for probable cause purposes when privacy is at stake.
8: Well, that would be — that would certainly be a basis to allow this for police officers. Uh, And the the
2: court could could not open the door to, uh, I guess,
5: to what you're objecting to. Why would probable cause solve the problem at all? There's clearly probable cause here. They're they're listening to what goes on. So, do you dispute that when they hear? That, that the drug transaction is taking place, that they, they lack probable cause?
8: And no, I think they do have probable cause. But in Payton, no. the Court said that police officers who are outside, who have probable cause, need more than probable cause to get inside. They need to warrant exigent circumstances. Right. I, I
2: think I may have created this problem for you, uh, and, and, and maybe uh, the, I, I should get you out of it. I'm not suggesting <laughs> that, the, that the probable cause rule is what is operative here. I'm saying that for probable cause purposes, we regard the police collectively. And why, since uh, privacy is at stake there and is at stake here, why shouldn't we have a collective consent rule, too?
8: You certainly could that, adopt that, that, that was rule. was my proposal. You, you certainly could adopt that rule, and that would be a, a, an additional reason for police to enter beyond what has been uh, thus far established by this court.
0: How do, how do you decide whether the confidential informant should be considered an employee of the police? Let's say this is the 10th undercover operation he's engaged in, they give him $100 after every undercover operation. I mean, is, is he an employee of the police department?
8: I don't think his employment status is, is what's at issue. The, the question is, is whether he is an agent of the state for the purpose that he is, is inside the — for the purposes of making an arrest of the person inside the home. Here, the confidential informant, all he's really doing is acting as a surveillance device. He's telling the officers outside what's happening inside, and he gives them probable
0: cause. Why does, that doesn't make him an agent of the police?
8: No, I, I don't think so. He might be an agent for, for some purposes, but he's certainly not an agent for the purpose of making the arrest inside, which is what they want to do.
5: What if there's a state statute that says that uh, confidential informants uh, may be designated by the police department to assist in making arrests?
8: If there were some to assist in making an arrest of the of the government, then, assuming that we're, that we're following uh, Justice Souter's new exception, then I think that they would fall into that exception. Uh, but here, of course, the confidential, there was no such thing. Uh, this confidential informant was not acting for the police. He wasn't making an arrest. There was, there was no... Well, ex- he wasn't doing it on
0: his own. He was acting for the police. He didn't decide, uh, I'm going to do this and, and uh, because, you know, I want to do it. And it just so happens the police are involved as well.
8: Well, that's true. He was acting with police, but he wasn't acting for the police. And and nothing that the, that the confidential informant did inside, even if attributed to police, would give the police the right to cross that threshold. If this confidential informant, uh, were a police officer, I I think you would have to base it on the powers of the police to make the arrest inside the power of the state to make that arrest.
3: Even if there is such a thing as citizen's arrest, I think it was part of this record that that they did, do not want confidential informers to go making arrests so that the, the police distinguish the confidential informer that's
8: correct justice ginsburg Uh, both the solicitor general and the petitioners agree that confidential informants should not and and would not be making these arrests so the function of the confidential informant is really as i said just a surveillance device and what's important is not what he's doing but what the police are doing who are outside
3: but going back to to why why should we decide this question particularly in Fourth Amendment cases when these issues will come up on suppression motions, so there isn't a need to decide them in the the civil context.
8: Well, I think in general we're talking about a very small category of cases like this one, where the criminal defendant won on the Fourth Amendment, and then the police bring up some new argument on a, on a qualified immunity defense because if, there would already be some law on the question if it were decided in the, in the criminal case. So in those limited circumstances, it seems to put too much of a thumb on the scale on the side of police to say, well, you could come up with some new theory, and you don't even have to show that it applies. All you have to show is that nobody has ever rejected your theory, and then it's not clearly established. And I don't think, in this small number of cases, the, the balance should really tilt that far toward police. And here, uh, here it's certainly not, where the, the Solicitor General and the petitioners both agree that the, the Court should decide both questions. The constitutional question here is, is not very difficult. It's, And it boils down to, in the absence of of exigent circumstances, could any reasonable officer have believed that the two circumstances they would like to see in previous cases, that is, that a confidential informant is inside and that he sent a signal out that there's probable cause, do those make any difference whatsoever to the calculation of whether there are exigent circumstances or consent? The answer is no, and no reasonable officer could have believed otherwise. If there are no further questions...
0: Thank you, Council. Mr. Sturber, you have three minutes remaining.
1: Thank you. Uh, The colloquy about the safety concerns when the officer or the confidential informant are in the home, I think highlight why the distinction between a confidential informant and the officer really doesn't make much meaningful headway in terms of the Fourth Amendment. Obviously, if a police officer was acting undercover in this particular situation, he would not have announced there were three arrestees that actually were in the premises at the time of the follow-up entry. He would not have said after the drug transaction occurred, oh, by the way, I'm a police officer. I'm here to arrest you, for obvious reasons, connoting safety and other issues which would have been intended to that. Similarly, this confidential informant isn't going to do that either for the same particular problem, even if this confidential informant had arrest powers under state law. The whole issue is the police officer can call up for backup and assistance to effectuate the arrest, which is precisely what occurred here. Similarly, there is no real distinction then to be drawn between a confidential informant as a government actor allowing for the additional entry or follow-up entry of additional officers for backup and assistance to make sure the arrest is safe and secure than if you have a police officer. Second point I'd like to make is the first time any Federal Circuit drew this distinction between a confidential informant and a police officer was the Tenth Circuit decision. They adopted consent once removed. They just limited it to a police officer. Obviously, the police officers involved in this case could not reasonably be expected to anticipate such a distinction being drawn, especially given the fact that there was at least the Seventh Circuit body of law, the Sixth Circuit body of law, and as we argue, which we think is a fair reading of Bramble, because they cite the Seventh Circuit body of law that includes a confidential informant, there were at least three circuits that had rejected that distinction. And Yoon in 2000 confirmed that in the Sixth Circuit there is no distinction as a matter of this particular doctrine between a confidential informant and a police officer. And finally, with respect to the exit and circumstances cases, um, and, and, and you can look at, at any one that was cited by the respondent, there is no mention of Lewis, there is no mention of consent once removed. There is no mention of any abrogation of privacy. Those issues were not raised, just like the issues were not raised in the criminal appeal of Mr. Callahan's conviction. And so therefore, they're really not relevant, they're not probative, and we're not suggesting this is an eggs circumstances case, nor are we suggesting, relying on, for purposes of the Fourth Amendment issue, any implied consent. We have rested our justification for the Fourth Amendment issue on search incident and also the Lewis Doctrine, because we think this is Lewis' case. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.